welcome to episode 17 of The God Learners, a podcast about gaming and reading in the mythical world of Glorantha. My name is Jörg. And I'm Ludo, aka Lord Abdul, and today we have a uh, guest, Brian Dugid, is that correct? That's pretty close, and that's uh, one of the best pronunciations of my name I've had. So, yeah, <laughs> thanks, Ludo. Brian Dugit here. Hi, Brian. Um, so, who are you, and what are you doing here? So, so I'm Brian Dugit, and I think I'm here to uh, have an entertaining time trying to pronounce the word Sunjin. <laughs> that was going to be my first question, indeed. How, how do you pronounce it? <laughs> yeah, so, so I'm here to talk to you about the Sunjin, which I've written a, a book about for the Johnstown Compendium, mm -hmm. uh, and anything else we feel like talking about, I guess. Cool. Uh, how did you, like, wh what was your path from, um, I don't know, a bright-eyed teenager starting to play whatever was the first RPG you played, probably D&D or something, or uh, all, all the way to writing uh, Johnston Compendium books. I think that's quite a long path with, <laughs> with a very prolonged gap in the middle of it. Oh, you had a so, deep freeze, like they call it? I had I had that deep freeze, yeah. So I think um, I first played RuneQuest in the 1980s, as with uh, quite a few people. I, I introduced a role-playing by a friend of mine with uh, the basic Dungeons & Dragons set, uh, which we first played and didn't understand the rules of. And for some reason, we'd heard about RuneQuest, I think, through the, the White Dwarf magazine that was very popular in the UK at the time. So my friend was the, the Dungeons & Dragons guy, and I became the RuneQuest guy. And I quite liked it and played it throughout my time at university, uh, which would have been the late 1980s. And that was in Glorantha or in a separate city? Yeah, yeah proper, proper Glorantha. This was RuneQuest second edition. I think mm -hmm. it was uh, there was a Games Workshop box set version of it with Apple Lane in the box, which was uh, yeah. sort of a good introduction to it. Uh, and we played that and played various other role-playing games. And I somehow got involved in um, the, the sort of UK fanzine community. I had a lot of friends who were into writing role-playing game uh, fanzines. Mm -hmm. And off the back of that, through some of the contacts I had through that, I got uh, invited by a chap called David Hall mm. to become one of the, the sort of founding publishers of a little magazine called Tales of the Reaching Moon. I've heard of that. I probably have heard of that. That was, I think, 1989-ish. Mm -hmm. and, and I was kind of getting towards the end of university and we, we agreed to publish this magazine and I wrote some things for it. I had a, an article in issue one on uh, Glorantha art, which Rick Mainz in his Mainz Index to Glorantha described as the, the start of a bad trend. It's been a bad trend uh, ever after. Well, how, how is it a bad trend? I, I think, you know, this sort of is a little bit ironic. You're talking about, a, you're going to be talking about a 160-page book on the Ascension. But it, <laughs> it, I think it was about that sort of... Um, microscopic examination of the game, the sort of very lore-heavy mm -hmm. interest, right. yeah, rather than rather than the playable things. So I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to that topic. <laughs> but yeah, that, that was, I mean, for a long time after that, I, I didn't play role-playing games very much after leaving university. I didn't, didn't, certainly didn't play Glorantha. I played Ars Magica and you know, various sort of homebrew games with friends. And then round about the publication of Hero Wars, so 1990-ish, so 2000-ish, I kind of drifted drifted out of it completely. And then it wasn't until quite recently, literally last year, that I discovered that RuneQuest was a thing again. It was news to me. News to me. I'd been doing other things. And then I sort of came online and I, and I saw there was this Kickstarter that I'd missed uh, and some other Kickstarter that I'd missed and some guide had been written and, you know, all this thing, stuff was happening. And I thought, oh, this, 
let's see if this is still interesting to get back into. And I sort of had a bit of spare money and I bought the guide and I bought RuneQuest role-playing in Glorantha. And, and I, I kind of fairly rapidly thought, actually, this is just as good as it ever was. <laughs> you know, maybe it's time to dive back in. Uh, you know, and that's kind of, yeah, that's how I came back to Glorantha after a long time away. Nice. Initially reading it and now, now I'm game mastering again, which is great. So, yeah, getting back in properly. Cool. Wow. Nice. Well, glad to uh, have you back then. So before we dive into the main topic, uh, we have a couple of things to mention. We have the last Glorenthan initiation episode that we um, published a couple of weeks ago, uh, which is our you know parallel series where we interview people who discovered Glorentha quote-unquote recently. So we sort of set the bar to discovering it after RuneQuest Glorantha was released. So, you know, sometimes after 2018 or so, uh, we interviewed Chris during that last episode. And that sort of marks the last episode of the dozen or so episodes we recorded late last year. So, yes, if you are uh, someone who discovered Glorantha rather recently and are listening to us, Please contact us if you want to talk about that experience. Yeah, exactly. Um, we want to continue that a bit more. Uh, we've got a few interviews to schedule, so there might be at least uh, you know two, three more episodes of that. But if we get more volunteers slash victims, uh, we'll gladly interview them uh, uh, to see you know what they like and what was difficult in um getting into Glorita. actually uh brian did you get any uh difficulty getting back into the setting especially when you go from you know snake pipe polo and whatever to like the giant guide and bestiary and uh, and all the big slip cases i think i think it was kind of good and bad <laughs> I think the, the, you know, the, the good bit is, is having been away for a long time, is all these sort of questions that we might have had as players a long time ago. You know, like, what was Sartar was one of the, <laughs> the questions back in the original RuneQuest 2 days. Yeah. You know, finally, we've got answers to all this. And some of, the, some of those answers we got, obviously, with the, um, the Hero Wars and Hero Quest period. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it, it's kind of all this stuff that has been hidden for so long has kind of appeared. <laughs> and at the same, that's, that's the good side. I think. I think the bad side is it. It, it is a bit too detailed. You know, I think there's too much. There's too much available. And I think, you know, certainly you go on the social media groups. You see, you see people who are very intimidated by it. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, those of us who played this game, you know, 40 years ago or whenever, we were not intimidated because you couldn't go wrong because there was almost no information to contradict. Yeah. And I think. I, I think. I definitely. Well, I'm not too worried about that. I'm quite happy to contradict things, but I think you certainly see people who are who are nervous of that, and I think mm -hmm. that, that's there's a little bit of a loss there. There's almost a little bit too much detail, and I think that's yeah. We'll probably come on to that again, talking about a detailed 160-page book about the Sunshine. But, uh, <laughs> you know. but yeah, I think, I, th I think there's a there's a sort of loss of innocence that's happened there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure, fair enough. Well, we still have Ludo's other endeavor uh, here on this topic, uh, which is the weekly newsletter where Ludo catches up with what is going on in the Grantham communities. So if you don't have time to read all the social media and so on, uh, Ludo's newsletter is a good way to catch up. Yeah, although 
lately in the past few weeks, I haven't had time to read all of it either. So they've been a bit lighter than they used to be. Uh, and also, I think there's been, um, as the fandom gets, you know, increasingly bigger, um, slowly but surely, uh, it gets harder to keep track of it. So what I started with, which was, you know, trying to have a somewhat exhaustive view of what happened in the Glorantan fandom during the week, uh, now has exceeded the free time that I have to dedicate to this newsletter. So now I, it's more about me picking and choosing what I encountered, and what I have things to say about. But, you know, if anybody wants to write guest segments to the newsletter, we'll be happy to include them and, and have, you know, more than one voice. Uh, Jörg occasionally writes some guest segments when he has uh, some time or some idea. Uh, but anyway, yes, the Journal of Renex Studies is uh, published every Monday and um, has my opinions whether you like them or not. Yeah, let's get to the main topic and why you didn't want to pronounce the name Sunshin or whatever it is called. Yeah, I pronounced it Shunshin for some reason, but yeah. What what are the the, the Sunshin Shunshin Shunshin? I, I did wonder we might have to just talk about the Haikimi instead because the Haikimi. <laughs> yeah, yeah, is is the is the same thing and far easier to pronounce. So yeah, that that might be an option as we go ahead. We'll see how we go on. <laughs> yeah, actually, do you have also um, a memory trick to remember how to write Shenzhen? Like where the H's and the S's go? I think it's built into my computer spell checker at this point. On, on both, both my both my computers have, have the correct spelling built in, plus uh, you know pretty much every related word that you can imagine is there. So yeah, that's uh, that's my that, memory related trick is is let the computer do the hard work. Yeah, that that does that does work. Uh, but anyway, so the we usually go with the assumption that people who listen to the podcast at the very least have the rule book and the bestiary, and pretty much no shenshen is in there except arguably the Talmori. So they some people might not have any idea what the hell is a shenshin. Yeah, and I mean I had a look earlier that the the word appears once in the rule book and, and obviously it does appear a few times in the, the bestiary of the, the Talmori. Yeah. Uh, and the, the Talmori the Talmori are kind of a representative Sunshin people, but also really not. Yeah, they have a lot of features of, of these other peoples, but uh, but they're quite different. And it's not surprising they're quite different. You know, there are a lot of different Sunshin tribes in the world mm -hmm. of Glorantha, uh, each associated with different different animals. The, the Telmori being associated with wolves, mm -hmm. uh, essentially being the sort of werewolf type people. So so they're a little bit strange. And they're, they're tainted by chaos. They change involuntarily uh, once a week on Wild Day, I think it is from memory. Yes, yeah. because that's that's the full moon day. So it, it, it works with the whole werewolf theme. It's, it's the full moon day, depending where you are in Glorantha. So if you're in a different different part of Glorantha, uh, you may not have, have the, the full moon on that. But let's not get into that. That's just going to complicate it? things. I let's not that. complicate things. Yes, uh, the core region of the Termori is further west, and they may get the full moon either two days earlier or later. I wasn't aware of that. I'll probably no. ignore it and forget <laughs> yeah, about I, it. Uh, I think but, for most people, they will. <laughs> yeah. So, what 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 are the sanctions in general then? So, so I think in general they are 
they're the sort of primitive people of Glorantha. They're the sort of um, the hunter-gatherer communities who are sort of left behind, really. You know, like in real world history, you go back in Glorantha history to the start of the Dawn Age or before that. Mm-hmm. There was a time when this was the, the you know the civilization and technology of everyone, uh, and essentially they're they're a Stone Age people. They pretty much entirely don't work with metal. Metal might be taboo. They don't farm. They might herd. Some of the Hisunchan people do herd animals. But they're a sort of Stone Age hunter-gatherer people who've been driven to the margins of the world. They live live in the corners where nobody else wants. You know, they live in the elf forests in the far northwest or in the mountains of Kralarella in the east. And they've been kind of forced there by circumstances. But, but once upon a time, they lived throughout the whole world. And they're all linked with, with totem animals. So each Hisunchan tribe uh, is linked with a particular animal. So the Telmori, the wolves, the Basmoli, the, the lions, Maralotti, the boar people, and, and so on. Uh, and they, they believe, or they are, kin to those animals. So a long time ago, it's quite common in many Chloranthan myths that uh, people and animals were the same thing once. Mm-hmm. That they could change freely between each other's shape. And at some point, they lost that ability. They became frozen as people or animals. But the Hisunshin still retain shape-shifting magic. So they can still recapture part of their their previous sort of beast essence in, in some way or another. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, that kind of sums, sums them up. I mean, I don't like using the word primitive. You know, it has the wrong sort of um, connotations. But technologically, they are Stone Age people. Yeah, yeah. They're animist hunter-gatherers who, who follow spirits, rather than sophisticated um, theist religions, cults that we see in other parts of Glorantha. Cool. So the first thing I like to ask with those kind of things is that, you know, most people are going to play Sautorites or, you know, Praxian, Grieslanders, like the, the homelands of the rule book. Like you said, the only Shunshun people that they might know about are the Telmori, who are described in the bestiary and are um, wolf people, like they're, Totem animal is the wolf, but they have this extra curse that yeah, basically yeah. makes them into werewolf sort of things. Uh, well, we have we have another assumption group uh, in the area, which is the Basmoli tribe or the survivors of Basmoli tribe and tracks. Yeah, the but they're I mean they're not described in the in the Bestiarian rule book. So most people who only have read that um, yeah. would not know about those. Um, uh, uh, only our listeners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what what would the average adventurer know about the Shunshin? I, I think, you know, in sort of official Glorantha and in areas like Sata, mm-hmm. you know, they, they certainly wouldn't know the word. You know, I, I don't think they would necessarily know that there are, you know, 40-ish different Shunshin peoples around the world of Glorantha. I don't think they would have any idea. Mm-hmm. I think they'd, they'd know of the Telmori as, as the, the wolf people, the enemy. You know, the people who raid our sheep and cattle, and, and, and I don't think they'd think of them as, as much more than that. Mm-hmm. They might well have met, uh, as Jörg says, the Basmoli from Prax, because they hire out as mercenaries quite often. Yeah, and those are the lion people, right? Those are the lion people. Yeah. And certainly, I think if you're in Prax or Pavis or any of the, those sorts of locations, you'd certainly have heard of the Basmoli. Okay. They're a relatively minor tribe, but probably quite notorious. Uh, I think, you know, sort of fairly violent, aggressive uh, warrior people. And, and I think that's just where people encounter them. They encounter them as mercenaries. So they don't, you know, like a lot of the Praxian tribes, they, they may not uh, understand their culture. 
Uh, and, and the Basmoli is another really bad example of the Hisunchen are really non-standard Sunchen people. M most Sunchen, including the Telmori, they live with their tribal animals. They treat their tribal animals as family. Mm -hmm. The Telmori have, have literal wolf brothers who they, who they bond with, uh, and other Sunchen people live with them, but not the Basmoli. Uh, the Basmoli's lion god was, was slain by a Praxian hero many, many centuries ago, and they no longer have any lions. So again, people might not even realize that they are Sunchen because they don't live with those animals. So I think within, within that core area, most people wouldn't know who they are. And I think actually, that's a really good idea to bring them into a game. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that uh, they're strange, they're, they're unfamiliar, uh, their understanding of the world might be quite limited. You know, these sort of hunter-gatherer peoples coming into contact with civilization, they also won't know a lot. And they won't know about Dragon Pass politics. You know, they won't have heard of Calia or all this stuff, and they probably won't be very interested. <laughs> so, so potentially, they're quite a good window into the game for someone who doesn't know a lot about Glorantha. Mm, right. You know, yeah. if, if, if you wanted to play a Basmoli Berserker, which uh, thankfully now due to the children of Hikim, my book, you, mm. you can do, you know, I, I think that lack of knowledge about uh, wider Glorantha is kind of part and parcel of their culture. Yeah. So, so I think that there's there's a real attraction there. Yeah. And, and I think there are, although those are the only two official uh, Hisunchen tribes within the Dragon Pass area, yeah, there are plenty more who could be there. Uh, there are, they could be hiding anywhere, you know. <laughs> <laughs> anywhere you've got an elf forest, you can have Sunchen. That's, that tends to be, mm -hmm. you know, the forgotten places where they hang out. There are places on the, the west of Dragon Pass, uh, near, um, you know, just beyond the Grayslands, where there are ample forests for people to live. You go down past the Holy Country, there are lots of forests and things down there. There could be tribes there we don't know about. We don't mm -hmm. need to play the official line. And, and then there are opportunities for Hisunchen to come into the area from really quite distant areas. Yeah. So, so one of the core things in the storyline in Dragon Pass yeah. uh, are the big heroes. You know, Argrath, the local boy, <laughs> Jariel, the posh girl from up north, uh, and Harrick, the, the berserk from um, far distant land of Fronella. Yeah. And he's yeah. come with his wolf pirates. And we know, we know many of these wolf pirates are... Uh, Hisunchen tribes people from the land of Fronella who became mercenaries or warriors or left their, their ancient homes uh, in search of adventure or warfare. So, so there are lots of ways to bring in, bring them into a, a Dragon Pass game, or of course people could venture outside Dragon Pass. Yeah. You know, if you can't find a friendly neighborhood Sunchen, maybe you need to go to their neighborhood. <laughs> yes. Track them down. Harek is a Rathori bear Sunchen too. Yeah, absolutely. He's he is a bear walker. He's he's from the Rathori people who live in uh, the aptly named Ratharella, <laughs> uh, a giant forest in in uh, in Fronella where they live with the elves and I think it's about seven or eight other Asuncion tribes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and yeah, he's uh, he's slightly notorious as a Rathori bear person because he, he killed killed their god or one of their gods and wears its its skin upon himself, the white bear. I like the idea that since the average, you know, Sartarite or whatever would mostly know about just Telmori and Harek, they would assume that, you know, all the, the, the Shenshen are, you know, crazy berserker people who don't control their animal powers. And, and because that's, that's the main examples they have, right? So <laughs> they might be actually scared of, of those. 
Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I think, you know, those more aggressive characters might tend to be the ones who are more likely to travel and get involved with other peoples. And that too, yes. You know, I, I think if you want to find the peaceful ascension, of, of whom there are many, you're probably not going to find them just wandering around in the middle of the hero wars. <laughs> you know, they, they, need a, they need a pretty good reason to be doing that. So the gentle deer ascension, the Damali, you know, or the um, yellow-quilled porcupine people, the Zanati, or the Akari, the skunk people, these are people who keep themselves to themselves. They, they, they hide in the forests. That's how they've survived for 1,600 years since the dawn. Um, by doing precisely that, yeah, those might be harder to bring into a game unless you you went to meet them. Yeah, but that's okay. There's, you know, there's, again, they could be surprising to encounter if you go to their place and, and encounter them, and you're expecting <laughs> more wild, furious people. You know, it might be quite a pleasant encounter to find this this sort of more interesting, peaceful civilization. So we know how to bring a few of them, as you know strange travelers or whatever to dragon passes you know being in the entourage of some big character like Harek or argrath or as uh, mercenaries or whatever what would be a good reason to make some dragon pass adventurers travel over to those strange lands so so i think there are there are things within dragon pass which have a sort of ascension connection you know i think it's kind of reasonable to assume that the the early people in this area, as they were throughout Glorantha, were Hussunchen. You know that if you read the, uh, I don't recommend you necessarily read the Book of Hjortling mythology, one of the, the Stafford <laughs> Library books, but it's, it's but it's very good. And and in there, it's got a, a story about uh, King Hjort and some of uh, some of the other people from that period who gave the Hjortlings uh, their name, the people who, the Orlanthi who became the Sartorites, uh, and that some of them were deer people. They were people who could take the form of deer. They could uh, they could change into those, so that there's there's some deer folk tradition, sort of sitting at the heart of Sartar. There there are places that retain ancient names and hints of ancient traditions. There's a place in Sartar called Elkinvale, where the the clan that inhabits that I think it's a Colbrea clan from memory. I think they they believe they are kin to the local elk, or have a, or have some kind of spiritual relationship to them. So so we know of some of these. We know. Uh, in the holy country in Israelia, uh, that the pig people or the boar people, the Marathi, uh, that many of the sort of civilized people of that area were, became the farming, the civilized version of those at some point in history. And then we also know that there are a few oddballs still hanging around, proper Orlanthi, who can turn into animals. We've got the uh, the worshippers of Adela, the bear mm-hmm. god. Yep. Uh, who uh, who recognise Odela as a god and can can take bear form, and have some kind of sort of spiritual identity with bears without going sort of too much into their mythology. Uh, and then there are the Yinkini, uh, who associate with the Alinxes or or the the cat people. Uh, and all of these kind of seem to me to have a, a sort of Sunchin relationship. I mean, the, the Odelans have pretty much the same magic as the Rathori. It's a little bit suspicious. If, uh, for for those of your listeners who've been look who've been watching on sort of Facebook, where where Jeff Richard recently shared some of the animal family trees of Clarantha, the picture of Adela and the picture of Rathorn are pretty similar. You know, Adela is just Rathorn with a cloak, or the other way around in in, in that artwork. I think we're getting a message there. And and uh, Yinkin, the, the the cat god, 
I think you might have to pronounce this really strangely, but it's a little bit related to Rincona, who is the uh, the spirit ancestor of the Bobcat people yeah. from Fresno. Yinken actually has some bad family history with his Assumption uh, brethren, the other children of Frala, the, the carnivore god. Yeah, that's right. You know, so I think the point I'm sort of getting at there is that that there is even within the sort of civilized people of Dragon Pass, there is a Assumption backdrop lurking there. Uh, and one of the thoughts that I have as we come into the Hero Wars is, is what if some of these powers are reawakening or what if people are hero questing or what if people are discovering secrets of their deities? You know, the, the dragons are awakening. The dragons are the ancestors of all the beasts in Glorantha. Uh, and we've recently had the dragon rise within the, the core dragon pass history. What if some of this is awakening sort of beast powers and, and things that people may need to go and find out about, right. uh, may not be able to find out about locally. Maybe if you're a Yinkini, you need to go and find your long lost bobcat brethren. Yeah. Uh, or if you're on a Dalen, you need to go and find out more about what is the truth behind your bear god. Mm -hmm. You know, so and similarly with the deer folk and the elk folk and all these other things, I think there's lots of reasons why you might have cause to go and find out more about your distant cultural history. Yeah, and even if you're part of, like, even if you don't have a Dalen or Yinkini adventurers in your party, you can also place that in the tradition of your clan or your tribe or whatever and say that your tribe has some, you know, old myth and yeah. origin linked to the Shenzhen. They have to go and find some MacGuffin or some information um, out there in the West or wherever they are. Not just that. I mean, there are lots of ancient myths uh, of the Wing Kotlings, the predecessors to the modern Orlanthi, fighting with just about everybody in the world. And uh, there's an episode where all their herd beasts were stolen by the enchanter of the West, mm -hmm. who lived among the Sunshine there, and uh, who was supported by those Sunshine. So uh, we have myths about Orlanthi fighting uh, Sunshine, mm -hmm. even in Dragon Pass. And another thing, Brian talked about uh, beasts coming back. That's, that has been a trend already. King Moradis, when he became uh, king of Dragon Pass, brought back some a songbird or so. And we have two, let's say, prophecies in the book King of Sada. Uh, one is about a character named Enjim the Leopard. So you can guess which animal she will bring back. <laughs> yeah. And there's a big thing about bringing the Aurochs back. There is. There was a, there was a quest line in one of the um, yes. one of the satellite sort of campaigns to to bring the Arrocks back, and and again the the Arrocks definitely have a Sunshine relationship, probably quite a a distant relationship, but you know it's definitely there. There there are stories. They're they're mentioned there. I think they're mentioned in my book very briefly. Yeah. You know, I, I think the thing I would just say say generally is. There's things there within the game and its background that can inspire this sort of involvement and this sort of storyline and, and an engagement with these people. But you don't even need any of that, you know. Just just change the world. Just make things slightly different. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, yeah. It's it's maybe the mammoth people might be a bit of a struggle to bring them into the middle of Baldhome, but you know who knows. Yeah. You, you, yeah, you just well, need one I... one mammoth that's been captured and enslaved, and you're going to find a bunch of angry mammoth people not far behind <laughs> you know so so even the more obscure ones i think it's just just takes a bit of creativity to bring them in mm -hmm. yeah there's always that hidden valley that may suddenly be opened 
Indeed, there, there are many things lurking around that we we don't know. Although you, you'll have to find a better name than Hidden Valley, because I think there's only already <laughs> like three Hidden Valleys published uh, in various yeah. books. But yes, yeah, there, there, there's always a, a hidden thing. Yeah, well, you can have the transient pass or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so now we've got an excuse for adventurers to go out of Dragon Pass and meet the actual Shenshen people of, you know, this or that tribe, whichever is your favorite animal, really. And uh, and yeah, I guess don't hesitate to make up new Shenshen tribes if there's a, a, an animal that is missing from the canon, but you really like it. So you mentioned um, that they tend to be like, you know, Stone Age people. What does that mean? I know that uh, in your book, you have like, you know, a fairly lengthy description of what it means. And it sounds like you have, like, you you needed to set something straight about that. (laughs) Yeah, me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I think, I I think it's, it's a difficulty of describing Durantha. You know, people, people use shorthand when they're trying to explain different cultures and make them uh, in a way that's familiar to us. Yeah, yeah and, and classic one, obviously, as we talk a lot about Glorantha being Bronze Age. Yeah, I, I know very little about Bronze Age history, actually. It doesn't help me very much. Yeah, really. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, wrote, uh, I wrote a whole <laughs> rant about that in this week's um, newsletter. So, yes. It's an excellent newsletter, and that's probably what's put it in my mind. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> Thank I, you. but I think it's, and it's part of the reason why I, I was using the word Stone Age earlier, because within some of the Glorantan writings, it has used terms like Paleolithic and Mesolithic and Neolithic. Mm-hmm. And these are kind of technical terms that unless you're a prehistoric archaeologist, they probably don't mean very much to you. They're sort of signposts as to aspects of um, Ascension lifestyles, because all of those are Stone Age um, technology ages. So so I think in the book, I did feel the need to spell it out a little bit more. And, and I've tried to be in line with the official RuneQuest and Glorantha material, the guide to Glorantha and, and its precursors in that respect. So, so they are primarily hunter-gatherer people. You know, they've got a, a cultural taboo against farming within the sort of Glorantan myth. Doesn't mean they do absolutely no farming. They might do little bits of farming. They certainly will practice local sort of wild horticulture. You know, they'll they'll gather seeds and grains and fruits and plant them uh, at places where they're where either they live uh, in a sedentary life or they're, where their nomadic lifestyle takes them back to. They are mostly nomadic because that's what people of that nature were in the real world. If they weren't nomadic, you know, you, you exhaust your local resources quite quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not true of all hunter-gatherer cultures. Um, fisher peoples in particular, coastal hunter-gatherers in, in the real world could stay in one place for a very long time. Mm-hmm. But most of the most of the Hisunshin in, in Glorantha have been driven away from the coast. The civilized peoples have tended to take those lands. So, so they, they, they tend to be nomadic. They'll probably frequent different territories throughout the year, depending on which food they want. So, you know, in the salmon season, they'll be in the salmon rivers. Uh, the, the the fruit ripening seasons, they'll be in those sorts of places, and they'll collect, you know, nuts and hunt small game rabbits and, and things throughout most of the year. Uh, and they may follow their prey animals as their prey animals migrate. They'll follow them around. Uh, but one or two are sedentary people, you know, depending on on the, the sort of local relationships with the flora and fauna. Right. And and they they will use whatever they can find to make tools. And whatever they find can be quite varied. So certainly wood, most of them live in forests. Uh, 
um, bones, antlers, uh, stone, most obviously. Um, they may have to trade. They may have to hunt uh, quite some distance to find good good stone that's suitable for making stone tools, stone axes and scrapers and spearheads and, and things of that sort of nature. So, yeah, got a question, a trick question for you. Garanta is known for uh, natural me uh, metals to occur. How do you deal with that? I think it's well. I think it's an interesting question. Is it we've kind of we're making them a Stone Age people because there probably should be a Stone Age people in Glorantha. There are still Stone Age peoples in the real world today. You know, so why on earth wouldn't there be in Glorantha? You know, do they not use metal for technological reasons because they've never developed an aptitude for doing so? And I think there are hints that some Sunchen or post Sunchen people did work metal. Um, gold in, in Ralios and copper in Fresnella and things of that sort of nature? Or is it or is it a taboo? Yeah, and I'm I'm probably fall more on the side that it's a, it's a mythical taboo. I think they like their lifestyle and I think they fear, you know, if you're living in the forest, you probably don't have to work very hard. Most hunter-gatherer peoples in a in a, in a in an environment with plentiful resources didn't actually work very hard to survive. You know, we, we see hunter-gatherer peoples today working very hard sometimes, but they've been pushed to the margins in very marginal territory. That's not the case in the distant past. You don't work very hard. You don't have to enslave beasts. Don't forget that beasts are your kin. They're either your kin or or you're familiar with the local nature spirits and you know you know and like them. You don't have to farm. You don't have to submit to priests. You know, you, you don't have to do what people tell you in writing, like what those wretched sorcerers of the West keep uh, keep promoting. You know, uh, all these sorts of things. And all you have to do to maintain this idyllic life is to follow your ancient way and your traditions and stay true to Rathor, if Rathor is your bear spirit or whoever it may be, and continue following that way. And, and I think they've got a both a mythological taboo against the technologies that lead to these more civilized uh, arrangements and a practical taboo, actually. You know, they, they've worked out what makes them different and they mm -hmm. like it. I uh, I remember um, listening to a, a historical podcast uh, not too long ago, where one of the historians um, guest there was saying that at the time where hunter gatherers uh, became, you know, they started building cities and became sedentary and all that, there is some evidence that a lot of problems arose from. Uh, living in cities like, you know, like disease and stuff like that. And that it's possible that the people who stayed as hunter gatherers, you know, they looked at all those cities with all their social problems and their disease problems and all that. And they said like, no, thank you. We'll, we'll stay here. It's nice. So I think that's that's a little bit of a myth in real world history. It's a bit of a romanticized view. You know, it's quite a popular historical view. But there is also plenty of evidence in the real world that um, early peoples did start forming cities and did start forming sort of large urban sites without all that stuff happening. You know, without being ruled by priesthoods, without being ruled by kings. There are, there are cases of that in um, the Mayan world, in South America, in uh, Mesopotamia, in Eastern Europe, where people appear from the archaeological evidence to have lived in big city sites without much sign of rulers. And actually, it was the hill barbarians, the Orlanthi in Glorantham terms, who started having these heroic warrior rulers. You know, so, so, so these things aren't quite that simple. But I think Glorantham's a little bit of a playground to push those myths it may be a romantic notion but why not you know even if the real world's more complicated let's see where it takes us in Glorantha and, and I think all that's 
totally compatible with what's written in the official material, the Guide to Glorantha and elsewhere, where clearly they don't like sorcerers, clearly they don't like priests, they don't like writing, they don't use coinage, they don't like farming. These are these are known things. And you know, and I think it's I think it's just an interesting thing to explore that there there are other societies out there which operate in a different way, not better and not worse. You know, they, they they you know they, if you look at the clothing they wear, you know they wear deer skins and uncomfortable bits of animals and things. They can't weave cloth because you know they they don't want to build looms because they've seen where looms have taken their neighbours. <laughs> you know, so 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 there's a sort of romanticised thing, but but also in Glorantha, a lot of the Hsunchen did go the other way. You know, there are lots of civilizations that we read about in Glorantha history who are post Sunchen societies who did start farming and who thought it was okay, thought it was okay actually you know it, it was quite nice to have sheep and pigs and goats and things and a more varied diet and running water and all these nice things you know just as in the real world there's a sort of romantic view and there's a practical view yeah the problem hunter gatherers have with these uh, agricultural people is simply that these agricultural people occupy the good hunting grounds and chase away the beasts they hunt Yeah, and, and I think we, we, we see that within Glorantan history. You know, there, there is a strong history of um, conflict between the hunter-gatherers and the, the agricultural people in, in Glorantha. Yeah. Uh, and, and the, the hunter-gatherers were driven to the margins. They were driven out of the good lands. Uh, they were um, converted, you know, evangelized in real-world terms. Genocides were committed. Genocidal massacres were committed against these within the game. Yeah, and, and, and again, none of this is, well... Maybe genocide is is right or wrong. Let's be fair, you know. But it's but it's 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 just sort of interesting history within the game, and and I think a lot of their position in the world is is they are a marginalized people. They have been pushed to the margins, uh, and I think that's an interesting part of their story. Yeah, yeah and this in, is in this the, is where you can also you know play games that play on themes like you know the uh, civilization and modernity versus nature like you know all your sort of like Miyazaki movie style stories uh you that you can you can play there right yeah I think it's a theme it's a theme lurking in the background and you know yeah. I feel a little bit political about it but I don't I don't <laughs> think that's a problem you know I, I think um, we can learn from politics and myth and all these sorts of things and it's just a story at the end of the day yeah yeah I, I think the prime example really is the Telmori that we're familiar with, they're there in the middle of Sartar. They're an accepted um, tribe, not an indigenous tribe. That's not their indigenous territory. They migrated. Oh, accepted in quotes. Yeah, they conquered their territory right, quite bloodily. Yeah, they're, they're accepted by the, the official governance of the territory, you know, the princes <laughs> of Sartar. Uh, they're not accepted by anyone else. They're, they're the foe. They're the enemy. They're the, the sheep stealers. You know. If you look at the wider Toronto, you will find some very big empires run by Sartar. There, there have been many. Yeah, yeah, there have been many. For example, the entire thing about uh, Fronela with the syndic ban came uh, because the Bear Sintron had an empire there which threatened to overrun Lothkar. Which threatened who? Uh, it threatened to overcome the local uh, kingdoms like the Magioni, the big Magioni kingdom on the coast. Mm -hmm. The response was to uh, shatter the land into lots of Uh, separated pieces so that uh, the Sunshin couldn't com uh, communicate with each other anymore by killing the code of communication. And they, they caused a few unintended consequences along the way, as, 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 as we <laughs> yeah, can quite a few, <laughs> as we can read about within the history of that part of the world. But, but yeah, I mean, I mean the, there are 
or were Hisunchen empires within Glorantha, the, the White Bear Empire that Jörg mentions, the, you know, the Haikimi Alliance in Ralios, the, the Pujaleg Empire in uh, Pamotella. I find them a little bit odd. I kind of find there's a question being begged as to if, if you know, your life is a Stone Age life and you like living in the forest, what's, what's in it for you to go invading Loskalm, for example, which is a home of civilized people, uh, wizards and, and knights and so forth? You know, why would you do that? Well, uh, bear wouldn't uh, plunder a honeycomb. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they don't invade, they just push back against expansion or something. Yeah. I think they, pre they pretty much invaded and wanted to take over those lands. And, and I think, oh, yeah. you know, again, I like that in a way, because again, it cuts against this idea that the Hisunchen are totally primitive. You know, they have they have similar similar goals and needs to defend territory, protect territory, gain resources as, as everyone else does. I mean, I mean, particularly in Fronella, where they've kind of been deprived of access to the coasts. Coasts is good ground for hunter-gatherer people, you know, fishing and, and shellfish and, and access up and uh, along it by boats and things. It's, it's good land to have. And it probably was their land once. <laughs> you know, maybe they just want it back. Maybe they're just being defensive. I don't, I don't think we need an answer. I think it's just good to see them in a different context, mm -hmm. doing something bigger. Well, yeah, there were quite a few uh, dominant Central people uh, at the dawn, or uh, post-Central people, like the Pendali of Seshnela, the Angerali Boer pe uh, Bull people of Fronela, or the Galani or the Anarali Horse people of Aurelius, all of, all of which now are either extinct or Marchioni or Olanzi. So, again, it's a big part of the Ascension history. You know, they were either uh, extinguished. So, in the case, you know, the Kiviti elephant people of Ralios appear to have been wiped out. They certainly can't be found anymore. Um, and a lot of them were assimilated in one way or another, you know, possibly quite willingly. You know, but I think, I think that assimilation, we can still see within Glorantha hints that, that, again, that sort of beast essence hasn't been fully assimilated. You know, in the Guide to Glorantha, it, there's some really good Ascension story seeds in the area of Ralios. So the the, the Western Malchioni people, having defeated the Ascension people, essentially kind of took over some of their spirits and some of their, their gods and used those to recruit Ascension warriors who, who became what was known as the, the Martial Beast Societies. So, you know, the, the Lion Regiment or the Bear Regiment or, or whatever. And they're still... You know, seem to be following some of the same spirits. There's a thing called the Ancient Beast Society, who are civilized people within an area of Ralios who are reviving beast spirits, who are practicing sort of shamanic rituals and dances and things, and trying to, um, you know, see some kind of resurgence of their ancestral uh, people. And we know that one of the most ancient shamanic magical traditions. Uh, of the Hisunchen in that part of the world, which is the, the serpent beast tradition. We know that there are still serpent beast shamans still around, still practicing whatever that magical secret is. We don't know in official Glorantha. Uh, they live amongst the elk people, the Pralori, who again, <laughs> like the Rafori, they live in the Pralorella, uh, being their territory. Um, and it's, it's, it's evident that some of these things have not died out, that they're still there, even amongst the civilized people. And again, you know, within the, the book, The Children of Hikim, there are a few campaign and story seeds that just sort of speculate as to, okay, maybe this is an opportunity for the Hisunchen to be more than just the spectators of uh, history. 
to be peoples who, whose time could come again. It's probably a tragic and forlorn hope, but, you know, give them a bit of agency uh, and, and give a bit of a, a way to engage them in a hero war storyline rather than just being the funny animal people who live in the forest and you know, <laughs> eat fish and eat nuts. So your book is called Children of Haikim, uh, and we talked about a few, well, you mentioned a few keywords like, you know, animism and shamans and spirits and all that. Uh, and Glorantha is, of course, big on cults and uh, mythology and all that. What is the um, the uh, Haikimi religion 101? Uh, like what, what do the Shunshin people believe in and what do they worship? That, that's a that's a very confusing question. So, um, we, we've seen Haikimi cults published uh, for Garantha in the past. You know, they go back to I think the late sort of nineteen eighties. Uh, information was published back then on Telmore and Basmol, and on what was then called the, the Sofals, uh, the Turtle People. Uh, yeah, so, so and and they all had a bit of a a, a cookie cutter blueprinty type approach. Where they all they all have an ancestral beast, they all engage with it primarily through a, an animist tradition. Their shamans are also priests. They have pretty much identical rune magic. You know, they can cast their rune spells to transform their head, or to transform their limbs, or to transform their body, or to transform their whole body, and, and they all do very much the same sort of things. Uh, and I, I have to say, I, I don't like it at all. Um, <laughs> I, it, it feels it feels like the God Learners have been here. You know, it feels like it feels like the, the God Learners have been. Of course they have. Of course they have. And they've not just yeah. been learning, but they've been interfering. It has that feel to it to me. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think there are core myths that are cited for the Hisunchan people within some of the Glaranthan sources. You know, some of it will talk about um, the ancient dragon Kogatsu. Uh, Korgatsu ripped itself apart to create the cosmos. Out of the cosmos, it created its children, Haikim and Miki, or Mikai. I can pronounce that even, that's a very difficult one to pronounce. Yeah, who are also dragons. Who are also dragons, and from them descend all the beasts. Mm-hmm. And again, it all feels very godlearnerish. There are other myths that you can read. There's some really good Rathori myths. There's a publication called Hero Quest Voices that came out many years ago, which has... Um, words from an uncle of the Rathori people and words from a shaman of the Rathori people. And they present sort of more localized, personalized things. You know, grandfather bear did this and grandmother bear did that. And it's not quite like that, but it's more that. And it's more about the local spirits in our woods, you know, so um, salmon sister or, or oak sister or whatever it might be that's relevant to them. And, and that has more appeal to me. Yeah. You want like more individual uh, myths and creation stories for each of the uh, Shunshin people where each is somewhat built around like the specifics of their totem animal and the ecosystem around that animal rather than just the same template. Yeah, and, and I think these, the, you know, these are people who, who they travel in as much as they're nomads, but, but they have a, a regular and reliable territory. You know, they're not necessarily going out to see the world. They're not really interested in what foreigners think of the sun. They'll have their own idea what they think of the sun. They'll have names for their rivers. Every river will be a different spirit. And I think that's that's true in real hunter-gatherer societies. You, you look at um, the indigenous people of Australia. 
you know, they're sort of, they used to be lumped as the Aborigines of Australia. You know, these are multiple different tribes and peoples yeah. with related beliefs, um, but different beliefs. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and I see the ascension very much in, in that sort of vein. So, so, so I think, I think they are primarily animistic. They, they believe in spirits. I think maybe their great ancestral spirits like Wrath or are gods. Mm-hmm. What, what does that mean doing Glorita? Because everybody believes in spirits because everybody's got spirit magic and bound spirits. So what, what does that mean in Glorita? I think it's about, I think it's about how it governs your life. I think that's the difference between the animist cultures and the theist cultures. The animist cultures are, are dominated by their environment and the spirits around them and the spirits that went before the ancestor spirits. You know, it's, it's a very real uh, exploratory tradition. You see what's there and you, you deal with what's there and your shaman helps you do that. And, and shamans, as a sort of archetype are explorers and visionaries who enter the spirit world and, you know, find what's within themselves and find what's there and, and how to deal with it. And they may negotiate or bind spirits or, or whatever it is they do. Theists, the theist cultures like the Sartreites, they have gods. Their God determines the world for them. It determines the way to behave. Uh, it provides their magic. If you don't do what that God says, you know, the spirits of reprisal will get you and, and the priest will throw you out. Um, there's an overlap between those two, you know, just talking about it, that there are, they have things in common. But I think, I think they see it a little bit differently. I don't think anybody, uh, I think the Rathori follow the way of Rathor because Rathor is their ancestral bear. It's who they are. You know, they can trace that back. Why would they not follow the way of Rathor? They are bears in human form. I think the people who follow the way of Orlanth, uh, it's not quite the same. You know, I mean, yes, there is a, you know, there is a sort of um, genealogy from sort of Orlanth and Vincott and Hjort and all these sort of people, but it's, it's a different sort of cultural thing. Your 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 relationship to your cult is is more mediated. You have priests. You know, the priests will tell you the stories. Your your friends and and family will tell you the stories. I don't know. It feels a little bit different to me. And certainly, I think there's a recognition amongst the Theist cults that you probably are worshipping an entity that's of wider importance, you know, Orlanth being the storm at the centre of Dragon Pass on that part of the world. This is a significant being. He's the king of the gods. And at the same time, a theist is becoming the deity whenever they cast the deity's magic. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And and I think there's something slightly different, particularly with the Sunchen animists. They're becoming Rathor. This 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 becoming bear, which is their sort of primary magic, that's them. That's their body and their soul. It's, it's within them. And all they have to do is kind of turn it on, learn to turn it on. They might need some spirits to help them learn how to t- turn it on, whatever. But they're not summoning Rathor when they turn into bears. They're just, they are bears, you know. Yeah, I think yeah. that's... Mm-hmm. By the way, I've got, uh, I've got a long-standing pet peeve about the transform self uh, spells and, <laughs> and their costs in uh, for Odalin yeah. people. I think you had some tweaks in Children of Hikim for those who are also annoyed by that. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, I mean, the, the Hisunchen people have less rune magic than others. They they don't have access to all the common rune magic spells. Yeah, so heal, heal wound and, and all these sorts of things. They They have access to a wider variety of spirit magic than others. But their, their rune magic, their core rune magic, their transformation rune magic is uncommonly expensive for what you get out of it. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Yes, if, if you, yeah, you know, but, but if you want to 
let's take the the Rathori or the Odalans, you know, who, who can turn into bears. You want to change your your head and your limbs and your body for 15 minutes. All of those, that's six points of rune magic. You know, with, well, other cultures are killing people and resurrecting them and blasting sun spears and doing all sorts of <laughs> sorts of amazing stuff. I yeah, think it's even the, more, I think it's like, isn't yeah, it eight, eight points? points if you want, want to, uh, to wear that for a day. Yeah, it's well. It's eight, it's eight points to transform self. Yes, to to actually transform into a bear is eight points. Yes, and and that's just for, that's just for an hour. That just takes you takes you for an hour. You know, yeah. it's if you want to go for go for longer. According to the rules, you can't even cast extension on that because extension can only be cast on the 15, uh, 15 minute spell. <laughs> you know, uh, I think so, the, uh, I think the exception is uh, spelled out for uh, transform self. Yeah, so it's, so I think you have to kind of. Um, think of ways of around this. I I don't particularly mind. I think you know, just find ways to give the sunshine lots of rune points. So that's what we need to do. You know, they, <laughs> they, they, they encounter they encounter spirits probably more often. You know, that they, they probably have uh, have those opportunities to increase their power and get more rune points. But one thing I suggested in the book as a one of the possible tweaks was just to say, okay, let's just let them use their transform self spell. On its own, it's two rune points, just to turn into an animal—not a magical animal with super strength like the Talmori have when they when they transform, or with a you know magical magical biting or whatever it may be—but just an ordinary animal. And I think especially one of the reasons that I started started thinking about that the the core ascension that we're familiar with—they are man-sized or larger carnivores. It's pretty good turning into a lion you know, or a bear. It's expensive in room points, but it's still pretty cool. But once you start thinking about the opossum ascension or the gopher ascension or the, the fire wren ascension from Pamel Teller or uh, the frog ascension from Pamel Teller, really? You're going to spend, you know, eight rune points to become a magical frog for an hour? Uh, I don't think so. You know, or, or, or maybe the idea is you become a sort of human-sized frog, you know, with uh, yeah, amazing jumping powers. I don't know, but it, it kind of didn't feel right. Yeah. Yeah, I like, I like your workaround of uh, using it only for yeah a couple points to turn into the non-magical version, which is, you know, both elegant because that's possibly what they want as part of their culture and traditions. And it's also backwards compatible with, well, if you want the extra strong one, then yeah, you get the, you, you have to pay more. Um, I might say that transforming into a frog might be good for, you know, quickly hopping away and swimming and it's a lot harder to hit a frog hiding underwater yeah exactly it's it's a lot harder to hit a frog than a human-sized person but yeah um, uh, so so it's definitely a helpful thing you know don't get me wrong but but i think i, I didn't want to just say let's let's just throw away all the existing rules i thought let's see if we can tweak yeah. them rather than just yeah. throw them in the bin and start again which is which is the other option <laughs> yes, but yeah, I, would, I wouldn't spend eight, eight points on, on a frog. Uh, yeah, yeah. Here. Uh, let, let me make an uh, observation here. Um, all the um, animals uh, that Sunshine can turn into are vertebrates. There are no insects, there are no uh, uh, invertebrates of other kind. It's always, at least uh, you have some kind of bone skeleton for the Sunshine. Yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, we're mostly familiar with the sort of mammals again, you know, the sort of bears and things. But there are reptile hesunchen, um, you know, croc crocodile people and snake people and things like that. There are bird hesunchen, uh, although some debate about how many of them there are. But there's owl hesunchen and frenella. 
it's fish eagle, Assumption in Pamotella, they do, they do exist. And, and yeah, they're all vertebrates. And I think, I think that's okay. You know, I think there's a, I did, I didn't talk to the book about this. One of the reasons I wrote the book was not, not to write a sort of, you know, cool book and make no money whatsoever on the Johnstown compendium. The, what, what got me started was, was reading the, the guide to Glorantha. And if you read the guide to Glorantha, from cover to cover, all, all 800 pages, which is a sort of, you know, a rite of initiation, <laughs> rite of initiation at some point in your Glorantha life. But the Sunshin keep popping up. Yeah. It kind of doesn't matter where you go around the world. You go in the West, you go in the middle, you go in the East, you go in the South. They keep reappearing in different forms. And as they kept reappearing, I just had a lot of questions about them. You know, what is it like to be a frog Sunshin rather than a bear Sunshin? You know, why do the bear Sunshin skin their own kin as they do and wear bear skins which is is, is canonical in, in glorantha you know why do the uncoaling reindeer people apparently um treat their reindeers as herd beasts to be dismembered for everything that they require which is you know based on a real world sort of hunter gatherer or pastoralist tradition um why do they do that if actually they believe that they are reindeer who can turn into human form which the uncoalings believe so so I kind of started the book just trying to sort of think, okay, I've got these questions. How can I make sense of it? And, and some of that did delve into why are there no insects? Why are there no insect sunshine? <laughs> yeah. I don't remember the answer, but that was one of the questions. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, th I think those were great questions. Uh, and I especially also like the question that you also sort of touch upon, which is um, the difference between the tribes that have uh, carnivorous totem animals versus those that have uh, prey, like predator versus prey uh, tribe animals, basically. Yeah, so, so I mean, we certainly know that the, the uncolings, the reindeer people, they slaughter and use every part of their totem beast who are their close kin. Uh, to survive, which is what, you know, um, similar to what traditional reindeer herders did in, in Northern Europe and, and Siberia. Uh, we know that the Pralori elk people do something similar, that they make great use of all parts of, of, of their uh, of their beast to survive. And that kind of seems reasonable, especially if you're in the frozen north where you probably aren't going to survive by any other means. But it does feel odd. And I, I don't think I really came up with a, I certainly didn't come up with an explanation that satisfied me. I, th I think the main explanation is that if you believe you're a bear, but it takes eight rune points to transform into a bear, you might as well just skin one and wear his skin instead. <laughs> it's cheaper, and it, it and it keeps you warm. I mean, uh, the the bear hunt, the hunt yourself uh, motive is also in the Odela cult. The hunter becomes the prey. Uh, that's an uh, that's one of the deep uh, mystic uh, experiences of all hunter gatherer people. Yeah, I think that's that's very right. You know, and, and you, you see that again in a lot in the real world with people who believe they can transform, but uh, you know, but will also hunt those animals or, or have a, a sort of very different relationship with those animals. I think it it defies rational explanation, but I don't think it defies magical explanation. Yeah, and I think it's it's kind of part of getting into that hunter-gatherer ascension mindset that, yeah, it's your family and you're killing them, but you are also transforming them. You're also partaking of their essence. You're also you know, recognizing that kinship, uh, as you say there, with a the hunter-prey uh, prey connection. And I think that's quite difficult. I certainly find that quite difficult to get my head around. Yeah, but we have a similar problem with the Praxians. Not, not as much because... 
the Praxians don't like the you know the bison people don't believe that they are kin to the bison or that they are bison. They they are it's their they are two-legged bison. No, that's not the way I interpret it. The way I interpret it is that they won against the bison in the lottery, in the Waha lottery. And so they are they are partners, but they are not kin. Uh, look at the genealogies. They are actually uh, descendant from the herd protectress, just like the beasts are. So I think there is there is there is there is a little bit of a difference there. I think the, the descent and, and the ancestry is the same, and they were all, you know, the, the, the great tribes of, of Prax or the Wastes originally. But they made a deal. They made a deal as to who was going to be the food and who was not going to be the food. And I think the the deal with the Hussunchen is different. The Hussunchen very definitely did not make a deal that you know I, a Damali, a deer person. Uh, and the eater and the Damali deer are the eaten. Yeah, they might do that, but they're they're kin in a very different way. Yeah, I don't feel like there, there is this separation. Yeah, they can continue to take take the other form, which the Praxians you know can't or can only with uh, with special magics. Uh, it's not an inherent part. And so I think I think there's a bargain that was made in the Prax, which was to take apart the, the two-legged and the four-legged people. I don't think that bargain was made in the same way amongst the Hisunchans. If it happened to the Hisunchans, they were victims of it. It was a, it was an accident. It was something caused by the trickster or by some other <laughs> uh, some other event in their mythology. Yeah. But yeah, I feel I feel like that that bargain sets a line like that that separates the two whereas the the Shinshin there's no line. They're all the same. So um, the last bit of topic I wanted to touch upon is um, having Shenzhen in your game. So uh, first as NPCs and then last as actual player characters, which is one of the big points of buying your book. It's to make uh, Shenzhen characters. Um, but first as NPCs, you know, if you indeed have uh, Shenzhen that you bring into your campaign, uh, how are they going to act? What are they going to trade with your PCs? How are they going to fight your PCs? Like, you, you, do you have like tips on how to portray Shenzhen? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I have sort of tips as to how to portray them. I think, I think it's you know of the sort of non-purely human races in Garantha, they're still humans. So you, you, when you encounter them, even the Telmori, you know you think they've got something in common with you. You know, they're holding spears, they're wearing clothes, they're standing on two legs, they're probably talking, you have some language they share with you. So you you think you know how they work. And you probably think, therefore, that they care about the same things that you do. You know, you you probably think that they hunt sheep because they're lazy, good-for-nothing, thieving people who, who can't be bothered farming sheep. <laughs> Whereas we know, rightly or wrongly, we know the Hisunchen are not farmers. You know, they wouldn't keep sheep. Why would they enslave sheep? They, they, they'll hunt, hunt wild sheep if they could find such a thing. But in the absence of wild sheep, they're going to hunt. That's what they do, and they're wolves. You know, and, and I think a key thing with any sort of encounter with Hisunchen is, is, is recognising they see the world differently. They, they may hold territory, 
but they you know they, they don't hold territory in the way that the Sartreites do. It's, it's the territory they've been given or, or, or been left with. You know they they don't own it in the same way. They don't you know they recognise that they've got a sort of temporary hold on it. They're in a very strange position, the Telmori. And I think if you go and find the Hisunchen elsewhere in the world, again, property property is not a good concept for them. You know they might own a spear. But they probably won't care about it very much because they'll just make another one. It's quite an easy thing to make. They'll have, you know, they'll have a supply of spearheads in a cache somewhere. It's, yeah, you because know, they break these things very often. They're they're not strong weapons, so so property is different. I think their sense of property is about a sense of the sacred. You know, that they have a a duty to the local spirits or a relationship to local spirits, rather than being owners of the land. And I think it means that when farming types come into their land and start trying to take some of it. There's, there's a clash of mindsets. You know, they operate in different ways. Uh, and I think I say quite a bit in the book about this as well, particularly with trade. The Hisunshin very clearly will trade with other cultures for things they don't have. They will, in many cases, take take metal. You know, the Basmoli use use metal weapons. It's not a, a big problem for them. Only there's um, a f- only a few things that they can't make and that they want. Like they they probably don't want your fanciest Rolian jewelry. Yeah, they'll, 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 well, they'll, they'll mostly want things practically, but I think also many uh, hunter-gatherer peoples, you know, do like ornament. Um, you know, there's lots of examples out in the real world, so, so who knows quite what they want. You know, in the real world, there are Amazonian tribes who who still operate pretty much a Stone Age existence. But if you offer them a metal boat with a, an outboard boater, they'll take it. You know, what a fantastic way to go and visit our cousins rather than paddling upstream for, for 10 days. That they They do want pragmatic things. And I think they recognize that outsiders trade in a very commodified way, you know, bartering money. That's not how the Sunshine operate amongst themselves. You know, like in, in the real world, many hunter-gatherer tribes survive uh, with much more of a gift economy by, by being more open, by sharing food. This is why they have prohibitions about eating food in secret. That's that's one of the Rathori Bearwalker prohibitions. You don't eat food in secret because people want to know that you're sharing with your tribe and family to, to aid your collective survival. So that when times are hard, you know, that you can rely on your family and your clans, people and people around you. So so they they operate in a different way. And when they come to trade, it's a sign of alienness. It's a sign that you are other. That we're adopting your customs because we know you need to, but that's not what we do internally. So, so I think those sort of cultural differences, uh, of which I've put quite a few in the book, I think those are things to to play towards, beginning to understand that these people just think differently, um, you know, and and perhaps beginning to understand, perhaps beginning to understand that they they are marginalised and oppressed people for the most part, even the Telmori. You know, they're vicious, ravening wolves who will eat your sheep and, and you know, kill your children. Um, but they're, they're, they're marginalized and impressed and they're chaotic, all that stuff. Yeah, you know, but they've had a hard time. That's a, that's a detail. <laughs> Forget about it. It's a detail. It's a detail. They were, they're, they're refugees. Oh. They were forced out of their, their own territories. The, the city of wolves in Ralios was destroyed and sacked by the Arcati. You know, they've, <laughs> yeah. they've been forced they're halfway around city. the world to find refuge. And this is the welcome they get. I think there's a different perspective on these peoples that it'd be nice to see during the encounters. And so um, fighting Shenzhen, so, you know, the Telmori, they're going to fight like wolves, like a pack of wolves hunting you and possibly using Wild Day uh, as the, the good opportunity to do that because they have their magical 
stuff at, on that day. And, you know, bear walkers, they're going to fight like bear or whatever. How would the prey animals Shenshin fight? Like, uh, if you... they, they run away. It's, it's actually okay. It's, it's, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's not Saturday night outside the pub where we've all got to prove our machismo, you know. Uh, well, I mean, if, if, they, if they are attacked, or how would like... They... If, they, if, they, if they're attacked, they run away, you know. What, what, okay, what, do, yeah. real deer, what do real deer do? You so know, you, you really sort of model their... Uh, their reaction to unexpected situation based on how their totem animal would react. Yes. Well, well not, not, not entirely, but I think there's an element of that. You know, I think if they are, I think they'll recognize their weaknesses. These people have not survived against other civilians by long, for very long, by engaging in constant fruitless confrontation that they're going to lose. They have weaker weaponry. They have weaker magic. They have smaller numbers. Uh, you know, they are probably less organized on the whole for the most part. You know, if running away is okay. They they will also use all the tricks and trades they know of their own territory. You know, they they know their territory intimately. They know where to hide. They know where to store weapons. They know how to lay traps. You know, they will be masters of ambush. They will play to their strengths. Yeah, and I think um, all of those things, you know, they'll come into play. I think if they have a powerful shaman, I think interlopers and invaders might be in for a shock. You know, powerful shamans do not operate, you know, in the way that we do by sort of throwing a few rune spells and sticking a shield spell on and off you charge. You know, that powerful shaman is going to direct spirits to possess you. It's a totally different way of dealing with you know, intruders. You know, so, so I think they play to their strengths. And uh, let's not forget that many Sunshin, even uh, those with we would, might would might think as peaceful animals, uh, hire out as uh, mercenaries. So they uh, have a core of people who have battle experience battling with these very invaders. Like who? Like, for example, the Prowlery uh, stag riders who really, uh, well, they once upon a time they had an empire ruling over other tribes including some of the Marchioni neighbors. So, yeah, I, I think that's quite, quite a common sort of motif amongst a lot of the Assumption peoples, and certainly the Prelori uh, were well-known as warriors. You know, most of the Fronellan tribes have, uh, have fought as mercenaries uh, at one point or another. Uh, again, uh, I do kind of... I do kind of wonder why, if you're living a nice, peaceful life in, in the woods, you really want to do that. What, what do you get from it? I mean, getting the the warrior experience might be quite good because you don't have to kill your own clansmen. You can go and kill foreigners like the Basmoli do. That's that's a big thing for them, is killing others. But I think at the same time, you know, you don't want coin. You don't want money. You know, what what do you want paying for? What are you going to do with all that money? The Prolori are, are notorious um, highway robbers. You know they they um, they thieve from people passing on the the highway from Maneria to to Ralios. You know why? What do they want out of it? What are they going to do with all this this wealth they've stolen? Where are they going to spend it? You know it's, it's useless to them. They're a nomadic tribe who follow the elk through the hills. It's just going to lay them down. So there is there is some material in the book that sort of challenges that view uh, and i think there is an internal culture clash within these communities i think some of them want to engage with the, the outside world the same as we see with indigenous peoples in the real world they want some of the nice stuff that civilized people have got you know and, and they need to engage with it so in the real world not as, not so much as mercenaries but as laborers particularly agricultural labors is, is you know, laborers is quite common 
you know, so I think there is that element. And I think you'll have the conservative side of the tribe, which is, whoa, these are city people. Why are you dealing with them? You know, they've got cooties. You know, you want to be, you want to be careful. You're going down a dark path. Uh, and I, I think that's, uh, again, a division amongst real world indigenous people. And I think we'd see it amongst the Hisunchen as well. Yeah, well, uh, it, in some ex uh, to some extent, I think it has to do with bachelor arts uh, among the totem people, where you have uh, totem uh, beasts uh, which don't f form one-on-one -on -one marriages, but rather a male dominating a harem. And you have a lot of males uh, who don't really get to get these wives. Yeah, I think I think there's definitely sort of talk about that again, using the Pralori elk people as an example about male warbands who, you know, like you say, don't have anything much better to do, bachelor parties, uh, these, sorts, these sorts of groups who have to go and prove themselves and, and go and get engaged because that's what young men do. You know, so, so yeah, and I'm sure that's part of other Ascension cultures as well. Okay, so um, before this episode runs too long, um, let's do the last uh, bit I wanted to talk about, which is uh, actually playing a Shenzhen uh, game, which um, like your book has a section on creating Shenzhen adventures. Uh, what What is your elevator pitch for uh, telling people, you know, forget Dragon Pass, run a Shenzhen game, it's awesome. Like what, what is, what's the... Um, uh, attraction factor for you i think i think there's um, a sort of in-game attraction and out, out of game attraction I, I think one of the out of game attractions actually is that his don't live in dragon pass <laughs> and actually get get getting out of dragon pass and i, I don't want to offend anyone at chaosium but you know the, the minute of the history of different satrite clans and who was the king of this and who's the queen of that and you know which which which, which, which frankly just leaves me kind of feeling really hemmed in you know that all that detail you know what's what's this called in the tribe of the dundalos or whatever it, it, it's quite a, a confined space and i think where the places where the hisunchen live is, a, is an unconfined space yeah. give me a blank area of the map that's just forests and let me play there well, I think it's, but, I th but i think it's also then their ability to re-engage with civilized people so there's, there's that conflict with the, the telmori and satar but we'll see similar conflicts elsewhere the pralor islands uh, the Pralori, sorry, engage with, with local communities, all the others do. You know, they have a history of conflict, and I, and I think there are a lot of stories to be told. So it's out of game. I think it's a creative space. I think you've got space to do new and interesting things. And, and one of the things I did writing the book, sort of reading through the guide, is there is a lot of, there's a lot of history and there's a lot of mysteries waiting to be uncovered who were the serpent beast masters mm -hmm. who were the sort of ancient shamans of his ancient people in Ralios or possibly sorcerers or whatever they were you know what can we speculate about what story does that lead to so i think there's this creative space is a big part uh, and then i think as people again it gives you a way into the Garantha where you don't need to know a lot you know, you can start. I mean, they always say if you start in Dragon Pass, start with your local clan, have some local adventures. Don't worry about what's going on up in Peloria in the north or who Bellintar was in the south. It doesn't matter. Start local. And I think for this, you can start very, very local. But I, I do think, you know, that there are some other 
stone age role-playing games out there you know i looked at uh worm as one of them mm-hmm. during, during the compilation it's a fantastic game brilliant art really good but it is a little bit hunting and fishing and gathering and trying not to get trod on by a mammoth <laughs> you know that's that's probably not everyone's idea of a good time yeah worm worm or worm is uh, tends to be fairly historic they have a tiny bestiary for like hey if you want you know fantasy animals there's that but otherwise it's very much yeah. like historical stone age yeah yeah so, 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 so i think for people who want to play that sort of stone age game those are good sources and you can use those sources with this engine you know to have inter-clan conflict or um, or fighting or hunting or you know the spirits are angry type scenarios yeah. and we, we, we might just Mention that even though Worm is originally like a French game, good news is that Chaosium, which listeners might know about, you know, uh, has picked up uh, and is selling the first edition of Worm. So you can find the Worm PDFs and books on Chaosium. But anyway, yeah, keep going. Good recommendation. And it's, it is a good game and it's well worth looking at. But but I think, you know, beyond that, yeah, it, it, for me, to make the Ascension really interesting to most people, you've got to bring them into conflict with their neighbours. They've got to have issues over resources with the local farming people. And they've got to find a way of getting involved in some of these big upheavals that are happening in the, in the hero wars that are happening all uh, all around the world. Yeah, you know, the Kingdom of War in Fronella being a sort of big driver for it. Um, in Ralios, there's an invasion coming from Sashnella. Yeah, you know, there's all sorts of things going on in different places. Would the Shenshen also often ally with the elves, especially those who want to reforest um, Gennaratella and all that? Yeah, and again, I put that in a couple of the campaign outlines within the book. Um, you know, that, that's a big thing for the elves is, is creating more forests at the end of the Third Age. Uh, it just kind of seems fairly obvious that we, we know that a lot of Hisunchen live either in elf forests or very close to elf forests. We know they like forests. You know, it, forests keep them safe. Forests is not farmland. Forest is their control over their resources. It's their traditional way. Why would they not want more forests? Well, if the forest becomes hostile to everything, not a plant, it's no, uh, it's no longer their territory. Maybe the Hisunchen don't realize that. <laughs> maybe, the, maybe the elves aren't telling them everything. Not everybody has the Hellwood Hills as their neighbors, but those <laughs> are ones. But the very names uh, suggest that uh, the Sunshine aren't that welcome in their forests. Yeah, yes. But, but again, I think that's all grist to the mill of the storyline, isn't it? You know, I think the relationship of people who, who want very different things, think in a very different way, including the elder races, I, I think there's lots to go at there. So, but none of that is to say that you can't bring bring the Sunshine and the player characters into your perfectly ordinary Sartrite game. You can have an ex wolf pirate or a Basmoli who's decided he's had enough of the wastes. Who wouldn't? It's a yeah. horrible place. <laughs> yeah, the, the problem with ex wolf pirates is that they have seen everything. That is that is true. <laughs> Children of wolf pirates, in that case, people who still have the the, the inheritance but uh, haven't been all, all around the world. A failed wolf pirate who got fired by Harek after his uh, second week on the on the boat, but uh, <laughs> and he's probably missing an arm. But um, there's probably a few of those. Yeah. Yeah. So when you run a Shenshin game, would you recommend that all of the characters are part of the same tribe, or because like you know when you play a normal game, there's always a you know there's a Sartarite and there's a lunar expat and there's a fraction and there's a whatnot like and. Sometimes it feels a bit contrived. It, does it feel even more contrived with 
Shenzhen and it's like oh, it's easier if everybody's from the same tribe. So, so I've not played a game where you bring them together, but I've certainly, certainly thought about it. And I think it feels quite contrived in a normal game, but, but when you contrive it, it kind of forces you to come up with a story. Yeah. You know, why are, they, why are these people together in, in my current game that I'm game mastering, which is in, in Sartar, just using the pre-gen characters in the starter set. There's some really dirty secret in the past of why these people are together, why these people, you know, we, we've got we've got a trickster and a, and a Tarshite and a Stormball and, and a Scholar. And it's like, really, what what have you lot been up to that has bonded you so strongly that you, that you want to stick together? So, so we know there's a kind of dark story in the background. I, I think with a, with Asuncion, a again, having variety, I think, is good. I think players like variety. You know, if you've got sort of five characters, all of whose special shtick is to turn into a bear, it's going to feel limiting to most people. So, so I think having Sunchen who have a reason to come together, if you're doing that kind of uh, all Sunchen group, is good. Uh, and, and I think there are things going on. I think there are developments. You know, up in Fronella in particular, there are developments of the Kingdom of War. There are Rathori who have only just woken up from a hundred years sleep within the last couple of years, pretty much, who still remember when you know Prince Snowdell was around and killing their their forefathers. You know, there's there's lots of reasons I think why different tribes might want to communicate, might want to trade, might want to cooperate, send uh, acting as messengers or um, learning uh, and sharing shamanic secrets, which is one of the again sort of campaign outlines in the book. But so I think you, I think you do have to, you know, I think you have to have a narrative that brings them together, just to to get that interesting diverse group of characters. And uh, which means either getting the guide to Glorenta, even if at least in PDF, or just making shit up, which is always possible. No, just just get Brian's book. I mean, it has all of the information <laughs> on this stuff. Yes. No, I mean about like all the, you know, the external stuff, like the King of War, the Syndic's ban and all that stuff that yeah. people wouldn't know about unless they have... Um, yeah, there's uh, going to be a Fronela campaign for 13th Age, which will have lots of uh, in information for other uh, uh, game systems, which is about to come out. Ooh, don't, don't make promises for Ivan. <laughs> Well, I've seen some of the progress, and it's, it's it's a matter of production, and it's come it's coming out in the next issue of the Thirteenth Age magazine. So uh, Evan is under some uh, time pressure there. Oh snap! Okay, good luck, Evan. Um, anyway, uh, where can people get your book, Brian? Where is it? And anything else that you want to promote and get people to look at? So the, the children of Hikim talks about, uh, I think it's 21 of these Sunshine tribes uh, in Glorantha and explores their culture and talks about their myths and their details and how to play their characters. It has an unfeasible number of footnotes for uh, Glaranthan lawmeisters who like to dig into the depths. But, yeah, you, uh, that's, you that's, even apologise about it in the. In uh, there's, the even, there's even a foot. There's, there's a footnote with a joke about footnotes in there, which uh, which, <laughs> which is which is quite fun. Um, yeah. So so uh, you can buy it uh, in PDF format today from the Johnstone Compendium, your favourite one-stop shop for Glaranthan community content. We'll have links in the show notes. And it is in the, pr the process of being turned into a uh, print-on-demand version. Print-on-demand version hopefully will be out by Christmas. It will have an extra tribe. People will get to play guess the tribe as to who's been added in there. It'll have some sort of updated... The Platypus tribe. 
It is not the platypus tribe. They, oh, they, they, they live too far away. They, they would have been cool. And uh, too, too duck related, possibly. Uh, so, yeah, so, that, so that's going to be coming out. That's going to have a, an absolutely fantastic new wraparound cover, mm. uh, which uh, if we were screen sharing, I could show you. I'll maybe show you that sort of after the recording. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be great. Hopefully that will be out by Christmas. So more material, better art, uh, and print on demand for those who like such things. Awesome. Cool. Um, any last words? I'll give you a last word, which I suppose is just because having you know we've talked about the assumption and we've talked a little bit about the book. One thing we haven't talked about is, is the art in the book. Mm. Uh, and I think when when putting the book together, I, I was quite conscious I, I didn't want lots more pictures of fighty people. You know, we all spend a lot of time in, in Ringcrest with fighty people, which is absolutely fine. But but I think a lot a lot of this hunter-gatherer culture, it's quite hard for people to to get to grips with if it's not something they're familiar with in, in real life. You know, they've studied prehistoric examples or real-world examples. So, so there's some fantastic art in there. Uh, and it, it it tries to illustrate a lot of Hisunshin daily life you know, what is it, what was it like when they go fishing? You know, did they go as a family? You know, there's, there's a brilliant picture in there with uh, this small child gathering a little frog out of a stream and things like this. It's just trying to, trying to give an impression of them as, as real people who you could relate to. Do you want to give a, a shout out to your uh, illustrators? Uh, there were several illustrators, but particularly uh, a shout out to uh, Diana Probst and Christy Jones, who were both incredibly helpful. And, and yeah, there's some fantastic art. The new cover will be from Christy. Nice. Uh, and art from others as well. But yeah, I think I think that was was really quite important to try and bring them to life. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of words in there and it, it needed a little bit more. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks a lot for uh, spending all this time with us talking about the Shenshen, which I can now pronounce more or less uh and everybody check out children of hikim on drive through rpg and uh yeah cheers thank you thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the god learners our website is godlearners.com where you can find episodes newsletters and articles about glorantha reach us via email at collective at godlearners.com or via twitter or facebook at the god learners for any questions or feedback. We are the God Learners. Question everything to the void and beyond. beyond.